Welcome, dear listeners. This week, we interview Professor Robin Hanson on the proposal of variolation to combat COVID-19. I am your host, Catherine Gu, and this is Pandemic Pulse. Robin is a professor of economics at George Mason University. He is also a research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute of Oxford University, which focuses on existential risk for humanity and its related prospects. Robin earned his PhD in social science from Caltech and a master in physics and a philosophy of science from the University of Chicago. He has spent nine years as a research scientist in artificial intelligence at Lockheed and NASA, studying AI and Bayesian statistics. Robin is recognized for his many contributions in economics, especially in the field of prediction markets and social policies. Robin is also the author of two very interesting books, The Elephants in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life, and The Age of Um. Robin shares his insights and ideas through his blog post called overcomingbias.com. And in this episode, I had a fascinating conversation with Robin about his proposal of a plan B solution to combat this pandemic known as variolation, which is a method of deliberate but controlled infection of a known dose of COVID-19. And together with appropriate isolation, Robin shares his views about why variolation could be an effective plan B in flattening the curve in our current crisis. This podcast was recorded on May 13th, and now I bring you Robin Hansen. Robin, thank you so much for coming to our podcast today. Um, you wrote a piece called Variolation Plus Isolation May Cut COVID-19 Deaths 3 to 30 Times, and that was written on March 30th. So please describe to us first, what is the concept of variolation? So with <laughs> yeah. respect to the pandemic, the two usual scenarios are one, you contain it so that you know relatively few ever get exposed or infected. And number two, uh, you don't contain it, in which case a large fraction of the population gets exposed and infected. So, you know, the highest priority initially is to try to contain it uh, and to prevent most people from getting infected. But uh, this disease is well past the point where any previous disease has actually been contained. So I think we need to seriously consider a plan B for the other scenario where most people may get infected. Now, uh, among many things we could try to do for that sort of scenario, one of the kinds of strategies is deliberate infection, to choose people and choose when and where they get infected instead of letting it happen accidentally. So deliberate infection has a number of advantages over accidental infection. First of all, uh, in order to achieve, say, herd immunity eventually, we need maybe half the population to be infected, but with deliberate infection, we can choose which half uh, and so, therefore, we can choose them to be the young and healthy who have a much lower chance of, of getting hurt. Secondly, with deliberate infection, we can choose uh, the time and location. And so we can much more conserve on resources of isolation and resources of, of medical help. Uh, so ordinarily, when we're isolating people and, and having them keep away from each other, we're spending huge resources to do that, but the benefit is concentrated in a tiny fraction of people who are at that moment infectious. So it's not very efficient use of the resources. But when you deliberately infect someone, then you can make sure to isolate that person right then and there, and that's far more efficient use of the resources. And you can also choose when they get infected such that if they get sick, then you have medical resources available instead of concentrating it. 
and by through this deliberate infection, instead of sort of there being this peak that would naturally happen, uh, you spread it out over time and you make sure that the people who are infected are not infecting others. So those are the many benefits of deliberate infection. Uh, choose who gets infected, young and healthy, choose when and where, and choose uh, to make sure that you use you know, your isolation resources and your medical resources well. So those right there would already be some good arguments for deliberate infection if you're in a situation where you need a plan B and most everyone will get infected. But it turns out that there is a much larger plausible benefit, which is that for most viruses, there, we've seen there is a substantial dose effect. That is, when you initially get sick, some initial bundle of viruses comes into your body. The larger is that initial bundle of viruses that shows up all around the same time, the larger is this army that's invading. Uh, right from the beginning, your body starts to build up an immune response, but um, the smaller is the invading army, the faster it can build up a larger immune response than the invasion in order to reduce the you know, severity of the infection. So this isn't just hypothetical, we've seen it for many viruses, uh, and in terms of, we definitely see it for lots of animals, and lots of humans, but relatively little data about death effects for humans, but we still have some of those. And so, for example, we have some uh, data about SARS and about measles where people were accidentally infected with different doses. And among the range of accidental infection, we saw death rates vary by three for SARS and 14 for measles. And even larger, uh, years ago before there were vaccines, uh, with smallpox, the first effective treatment of smallpox was variolation, i.e. deliberate infection with a small dose of smallpox. And that typically reduced death rates from the usual 20 to 30% death rate with smallpox down to one to 2%. And in fact, in the United States, during the Revolutionary War, uh, there was a smallpox uh, epidemic that decimated the troops in Canada, which is why the US doesn't include Canada. And George Washington, head of the army, was very concerned. And so he violated the law of Continental Congress and he ordered all the troops to be variolated in secret. And that did reduce the death rate uh, dramatically. And that allowed the American troops to fight on healthily, which allowed us to win the Revolutionary War. Um, so that's a quick summary of variolation. So what we need for variolation uh, to make it work for this pandemic is we need a small trial to confirm that the usual effect for other viruses does hold for this one in terms of dose effects and also to explore some other potential gains, i.e. there might be a strain effect and that some strains are better than others and there's probably an effect of what kind of vector you use to infect the body. Does it go through the skin, the throat, the stomach? Uh, that probably also makes a difference with respect to severity. So we may well be able to reduce the severity of this disease, even if everyone gets it by a factor of 10, by just doing a small trial that tests, again, these dose uh, strain and vec delivery vector effects uh, so that we can then you know, find a way to, to deliberately infect people with a low dose, uh, good strain, et cetera. So I looked into the word variolation. You know, that was derived back in the 18th century uh, because the uh, word root variola is referring to that smallpox virus strain, um, which is why people are using this method to uh, fight against smallpox. But on the other hand, vaccine has been the modern solution to 
uh, infectious disease because for various reasons it's much safer and more scientific in its approach. So coming back to COVID-19, please explain to us why would it make sense for us to rethink a concept that has been uh, 200 years old and especially when we do have all these progress uh, happening in the field of vaccine development as well. Um, vaccines are less damaging so say a smallpox vaccine may have a death rate of one in a million rather than the one or two percent of the variolation, which is even though that's better than the 10 to 20 to 30 percent, still the vaccine's better. But vaccines are less of a sure thing in terms of any one vaccine. Uh, that is, you have to search in the space of possible vaccines to find a vaccine for a particular disease. And there are many viruses for which we still don't have a vaccine for including basically all the other coronaviruses we've ever met. We don't have vaccines for any of those. Um, so uh, vaccine is a less of a sure thing in terms of whether it'll work. And it's also less of a sure thing in terms of whether there are nasty side effects. So that's why there is this careful process to search for and test vaccines. First of all, you can't just say that'll work and just start doing it. And secondly, you're not sure that if there aren't nasty side effects. There have been vaccines that in fact are worse than the disease. If we look at variolation, uh, variolation of course is worse than a vaccine if you have a good vaccine. But the, the nice thing about variolation is we're pretty sure it will work. That is well over 50-50, probably you know, 75% or more. And we're pretty sure about the side effects in the sense that it's just the same disease everybody's getting. So uh, yes, the disease has bad effects and, and goes bad sometimes, but the variolation will, will either, you know, at the worst case, be as bad as the usual disease, or it might be substantially better. So the variolation test needs to less worry about nasty side effects, and um, it's more sure that it'll work. So that's why in some sense, it would be a, a good first priority of a thing to try. So let's do this thought experiment where imagining um the government only has a very finite amount of resources to allocate and it only has the option of choosing one out of the two which is whether to put all the money in developing this variolation trials uh, versus uh, putting all the money into say developing the top three vaccine uh, trials that's happening which one would you choose and what's the argument so the key point is vaccines are all pretty random uh, in the sense that you can't be very sure of any one vaccine trial you might have more confidence that out of all 120, you know, something is going to work. But each one is more of a long shot. Whereas for variolation, it's a pretty confident thing. I'd say, you know, 75% chance that that will work. So it seems like if you've got three or five slots, one of the slots should go to variolation. And then the others can go for these longer shots that you might hope. And of course, if they work out, then you'd want to use that instead. But still, you know, rat, the, the, the reference point here is people getting infected accidentally with an ordinary dose with no vaccine, and that's the thing you're trying to prevent. And so, you know, take the burden in hand. If we could cut death rates by a factor of three to 30, um, yes, that's not cutting it all the way to zero, but I mean, it's still a lot better than not cutting it. What are your main base assumptions for this proposal? The first key point is we might not succeed in containing the disease. <laughs> Okay, that means we need a plan B. We don't necessarily need to pull the trigger on the plan B. It might be that we will turn out with the plan A will work and then we won't need to use plan B. But the first assumption is there's a large enough chance that plan A will fail 
that we should, in fact, prepare to have a plan B. If you're really confident that plan A will succeed, there's no point in having a plan B. And you might think perhaps that even preparing for a plan B is a mistake because um, you know, it'll dismotivate people or make people feel like we've given up or, or you know, not feel unified or whatever. So you might think there's some sort of psychological or, or, or community goal in not even preparing for a plan B so that we're all motivated for planning, okay? Uh, so the assumption here is we need a plan B and we need to get ready for the scenario where most people might get infected. That's the key assumption number one. And then assumption number two is uh, that there is a substantial large, you know, say 75% chance that there is a large dose effect for this disease or a large delivery vector effect or a large strain effect. One of those three effects will be substantial. Uh, if those effects, you know, if the chance of those were very low, then it wouldn't be worth bothering even do a trial to find out. But in fact, the chances are well above 50-50. And so then, uh, the, you know, another key assumption is that we should allow people to voluntarily take the chance with their own health in order to find out if this benefit can be delivered to all the rest of us. And I guess another key assumption is that we should allow people, if they decide it's in their interest, to deliberately get infected with a low dose as a reasonable way they can make a trade-off between the risks they face if they get accidentally infected and uh, the other choices and costs they make you may decide that that's simply unethical to let people make that sort of choice regardless of the consequences. Okay, there are a few topics I want to unpack here. Let's focus on the dose effect first. By saying that the dose effect will work, we are effectively claiming that we can manage this COVID-19 in our body if we just inject a small dose. But how can we be confident about this claim right now? I mean, first, we don't know what that small dose really is. And second, we don't actually know if we can control this disease, even if it's just a small dose. And plus, I suppose a major reason why an effective vaccine will take about 12 months right now to develop is precisely because the lack of understanding and confidence um, that we have about the nature of this virus. You have to think probabilistically. Uh, there's no, you know, absolutes in this sort of world. There's no guarantees. Uh, until you have data about COVID, you have to look at data about other related diseases. Certainly SARS is pretty closely related to COVID. In fact, it's often called SARS-2. And so I think the fact that SARS has a pretty substantial demonstrated dose effect, you know, is a strong suggestion for COVID. And the fact that most viruses that we know of have a dose effect uh, that's enough, I think, to justify a small trial. And in the small trial, that's exactly where you will verify how exactly to give people how much of a dose. So part of it is, you know, so say, for example, you took, I don't know, old masks that people had who were sick, and you'd put them in a bucket of water, and you swirl them around. And so now there's viruses in this water. And now you dilute this water by varying degrees to see how small a dilution it will work. So, you know, you start with very small dilutions, and you find when you give that to people, it doesn't work. <laughs> And you keep increasing the dilution until you find the level at which that's enough to get somebody infected. And then that's going to be a minimal dose uh, infection. And then you want to vary, ver verify in a trial that people who get infected that way have a lower rate of you know, symptom severity than people who are infected in the usual way. And that's the main thing you want to verify at the beginning. And we can't be 
overwhelmingly confident of that, we can just say, this dose effect is a very standard thing across lots of diseases. The dose effect is in fact the major reason why we wear masks, you know. <laughs> that rationale for masks is the idea that uh, you may get infected, but it will be via a lower dose if you get the mask. You know? So if you've heard of people supporting the idea of masks and saying there's pretty strong support for the idea that you should be wearing masks, that is the same rationale as for a low dose uh, effect, which is the rationale for variolation. Especially, I think it will be very interesting, say, if we do carry out the trial amongst the first 100 people. Because especially for the first batch of people who are going to volunteer to do this, I mean, they do face a very realistic chance of getting seriously ill. And that may even you know, lead to death and so on. So how do we balance in terms of the need for informed consent when we don't really know, you know the full extent of the risk, you know, coming from a more ethical perspective? Right. So if we, if we just stand outside of medicine and we look in the rest of our lives, we are pretty consistently okay with letting some of us take substantial risks for the rest of us and be compensated financially and by glory and, and praise. So in the military, in police, in fire, in, in many other search, you know, rescue uh, op workers, even uh, medical workers, we accept that they take a higher risk of personal medical harm and uh, personal harm, uh, but we're gonna pay them and we're gonna celebrate them. And that's just a general thing we allow in the rest of life, even when these are quite uncertain. It's quite uncertain whether anyone so soldier will be hurt and where they might get hurt or whether anyone fire one. I mean, uh, these are uncertain things, but nevertheless, we let people take these risks as long as we tell them what we know about the risk. So when we get into medicine, they have adopted a different set of medical ethical principles that is not the same set of principles we apply in the rest of our lives. So for example, one ethical principle they've applied is that these people who undergo this, they can't suffer a harm. <laughs> they can't suffer a substantial harm and it doesn't matter if we pay them or they want to in their benefit society, they've just imposed the standard, you can't let them suffer the harm. That, you know, and that's just a different standard than we apply elsewhere in life. They've also often imposed the standard of informed consent by which they interpret that you need to be pretty sure exactly what will happen or it's not informed consent. Now, you know, when you get married, you have informed consent, but that doesn't mean you know how your marriage will turn out. You've got a lot of uncertainty about that. You can accept a job or move to a new country, and those are all decisions you make in the face of a lot of uncertainty about the consequences. In the rest of the life, we say it's informed consent if we tell you as much as we know about the consequences and we let you take your chances. But in medicine, they've decided that high degree of uncertainty there is not allowed and that is not informed consent. You can't give informed consent unless we can tell you pretty confidently what will happen. Right. Another question I have is on immunity. Again, the understanding and data in this area is inconclusive since it has only been a few months that we get to know this disease. So we don't know how long the immunity for COVID-19 uh, lasts. And also the concerns that COVID-19 can be similar to some other uh, infectious diseases that it is able to go into relapse and get reactivated at a later stage. So therefore, our assumption of immunity for COVID-19 can be quite tricky to rely on when uh, discussing about deliberate infection, don't you think? So if immunity lasts a long time, say a lifetime, then what we're mainly all focusing now is a once in a lifetime choice about how to deal with this disease. Uh, I.e., do we wait until there's a vaccine that saves us forever or do we get infected and then immune after we recover forever? If immunity is short term, say a year, 
that instead of a once in a lifetime choice, we are facing a once a year choice. So that raises the stakes, uh, right? <laughs> if we face this choice again, year after year, then first of all, that's gonna make it harder to make a vaccine. And so uh, if immunity is short term, it means the vaccine solution is also harder to produce and, and less, more short lived. And we just face the same problem again and again, year after year. But that would seem to increase the benefit of reducing the death rate and the, and, the, and the rate at which this hurts us, right? If we can reduce the death rate and the rate of serious illness by a factor of three to 30 through variolation, then instead of that being a one once in a lifetime benefit, when for the one time you face this disease, it's a once in a year benefit where every year you get a factor of three or 30 reduction in the death rate because uh, you have this thing that helps you every year. Now, that's mitigated somewhat because, of course, the people who are dying tend to be old and sick, and when they die the first year, they don't die the second year or the third year because they're already dead, right? <laughs> so after a number of years of this, we we'll already have a selection effect whereby the more vulnerable people are selected out. Uh, it's a pretty sad selection effect, but uh, that can work. But um, it seems to me that the benefit of variolation is all the more eager, you know, all the stronger and all we should be all the more eager to get it when this is something that comes back every year that we need to face again and again and again. And what about, I mean, again, this is something we don't, we can't confirm yet, but what about all these potential long-term effects? Because um, I read some, so I think worrying statistics actually, because coming from the CDC, yeah. it says it says like fourteen to twenty-one percent of the people of generally young age, which is between say twenty to forty-four, they'll end up to be hospitalized. And out of those people, ten percent of them will actually show heart failures. And then another twenty to thirty biomarkers for heart damage. So this is some research my uh, my team has done. Right. And I'm looking at these data, and I really worry. So you know, I'm a healthy person, and even though. You know, I have the option of just not having the virus in my body at all versus me maybe volunteering to do okay. this violation. So that's about plan A versus plan B. So all the way yeah. back to the beginning. If we can achieve plan A, that's the best solution, right? We prevent most everyone from getting infected or exposed. We crush it and we minimize it to a small number of people and keep that number small until we have a strong treatment. That is the plan A. That is the best scenario if we can achieve it. Unfortunately, we are failing at that. We have not grabbed this early when it was easiest to do that. It's now in a lot more people in the US, I guess the official numbers are a million people who have been infected. And uh, we are struggling now, even with a pretty you know, strong lockdown to keep the, uh, the growth rate uh, low. In fact, even if the national growth rate's declining, we may have say decreased by 20% in a month. You know, that's just not remotely fast enough to get this thing down to a low level where the traditional test and trace will work. So we are at substantial risk of failing for plan A and therefore we need a plan B. And so the key point is if a lot of people get this and don't die but suffer a lot, that's all the more reason to find a way for them to suffer less. So, you know, typically when you find a way to reduce death rates, you also reduce severe symptom rates. That was certainly true for, for smallpox and other viruses, the variolation not only reduced the death rate, it also reduced the rate of severe symptoms. Now, let's move on to talk about trials. What's the idea of a human challenge trial for variolation? So uh, the concept of a human challenge trial is uh, that in an ordinary vaccine trial, you give a bunch of people the vaccine and then you wait to see who randomly gets accidentally infected. And then among those people, you track to see who does better. 
So that means you need a lot more people and you have to wait longer for uh, a regular vaccine trial than if you gave people the vaccine and then deliberately infected those people with the disease you're trying to see if it, if it cures them of. So that is a widely uh, discussed proposal that I don't think has been officially approved, but uh, it would allow a vaccine trial to go faster and with fewer subjects. And the first part of that, it, you need to have a trial that is mostly what I want for a variolation trial, which is to have a way that you deliberately infect people and check that it works. So um, I would very much like that process to be available, but again, so far it has not been approved. I see. Let's say we can carry out variolation at scale, particularly in states facing very high COVID-19 death rates right now. But how can we balance this to the serious constraints already on our existing medical resources? So three things to say here. First, uh, in the United States, for example, uh, the vast majority of counties are not overwhelmed medically. They have plenty of medical resources. So at the moment, most places could well do deliberate infection without any uh, problem at all in terms of medical resources. Uh, Secondly, um, we don't need everyone to do this for it to have effect. Its effect is proportional to the number of people who do it. So there are some kinds of policies like, you know, closing down the borders where we have to do it together. And if we don't do it well enough, we all suffer. But variolation and deliberate infection is not the sort of thing that we all have to make people do. Uh, The first priority is just to allow people who want to do it to do it and to gain that personal benefit for themselves. Uh, The more people who volunteer, the more benefit. But uh, that's all incremental benefit. There's no threshold of enough people doing it to get a benefit it's a benefit for each and every person who does it. Uh, of course, if we decide it's a benefit for us socially as well as individually, we could want to encourage it and subsidize it. And then we might eventually run up to capacity limits of how far we could go. But in terms of the resources, uh, again, the key two key resources are isolation resources and medical treatment resources. And variolation and deliberate infection reduce the need for both of those resources. So when resources are scarce, that's all the more reason to economize on those resources this way. Like I said, for isolation, usually say, say if you have somebody who's possibly been exposed to the virus and you're isolating them, right? That's, you know, maybe there's a 10% chance they were exposed. You aren't sure, but you've decided that's a high enough chance to isolate them. But now that means in this isolation place, you know, only one out of 10 people are actually need to be there in terms of isolation. The other nine out of 10 are just there out of precaution that's a relatively inefficient use of that isolation resource. When you deliberately infect someone, you know that that person was infected and you know it's worth spending the isolation resource on that person. So when isolation resources are scarce, this is a much more efficient use of that isolation resource. Also, if you reduce the death rate by a factor of 10, you also reduce the other um, symptom and severity rates by a factor of 10. So that means for every patient you, deliberately infect uh, that, you know, every 10 patients you deliberately infect, uh, that only w- would have the same demand on the, re- on the system as one person who was accidentally infected. So that means when the resources are scarce, you would much rather have deliberately infected patients than accidentally infected patients because they need much fewer resources. So deliberate infection through variolation would be m- much more economizing on both medical resources and on isolation resources. I see. Um, 
And I think in the remaining time, I want to shift gear and just talk about uh, policy implementation about this violation. Uh, do you think if it's going to be implemented, who should carry out that role? Would that more likely or plausible to be privately funded versus, you know, something like a public policy um, implementation? So, you know, in the world, you know, most problems divide into the two categories, the problems that we can each deal with ourselves without involving the rest of the world and the problem that we have to get together to solve, to solve collectively. When we have to solve problems collectively, that makes a problem much worse because we're just bad at getting together to solve problems collectively. It takes us longer, we make worse decisions, there's more inefficiency, there's more people who sneak in and, and, and steal stuff. It's just hard to deal with problems when we all have to do things collectively. There are some things related to pandemics that we kind of have to deal with collectively, say, uh, and for those, we just have to do it. But variolation is not one of them. We don't have to together decide what to do about it. We can just let some of us do something to help ourselves. And if other people don't like it, let them not do it. Uh, that is usually the best way to deal with most problems in the world is not to make them into a collective problem that we all have to decide together, but to allow it to be separate problems that we each deal with, right? And, you know, that's how we deal with most every problem we have in the world typically <laughs> is not getting all together and solving it together. But, you know, each of us solves our problem separately and we help each other to some mild degree, but we don't have to approve of each other's solutions. So for this pandemic, Variolation is, in fact, a solution that doesn't require us to coordinate other than stopping preventing people from doing it. I mean, since we have set up these regulatory systems together that prevent people from doing it, then I guess we have to together decide to stop that. But that's all we have to do is just stop preventing people from fixing their own problems. And then... On this issue about compensation, what the right incentive schemes uh, for people to volunteer, what would be a fair system to design that? And do you think we need any subsidies, say, coming from the insurance policies or uh, the government? So um, if you are looking at the person who might go into the Hero Hotel to get deliberately infected and asking about their incentives, the reason we might be tempted to subsidize that is if we thought there was insufficient incentives and we're worried that not enough people will do it. Now, before you were talking about there not being enough resources to support enough people. If you're in that situation, you're not looking at the problem of encouraging people, you're looking at the problem of rationing a limited resource that you can't give to everyone, right? So it only, you only are, would ever consider subsidizing something when you have enough resources to do more and you just don't have enough volunteers. The reason people might volunteer even without a subsidy here is first, they personally get a lower chance of dying and sickness. And secondly, they can get this over with and get back out and socialize and work. So those two incentives already look pretty strong as incentives for individuals. I'm not sure I see a strong need for us to subsidize, but I do think the first thing that might be to ask is, when you go to a hero hotel, will your health plan pay for it? <laughs> And right. then we ask, well, from the health plan's point of view, on the negative, they have to pay for this, you know, going to this hotel. On the other side, you know, they face the risk that you will uh, get accidentally infected and then cost a lot of resources on the other end. So uh, if they see that you're going to the hotel, say, reduces your chance of serious illness and expense by a factor of 10, they may well be willing to pay. <laughs> for your hotel stay there in order to prevent the larger harm. Absolutely.
Thank you so much, Robin, for the interview today. I really enjoy talking to you. Oh, it's been nice to meet you, and I hope maybe we'll meet in person someday. Thank you so much for listening today. If you would like to follow Robin, he's on Twitter at Robin Henson, or follow his blog post at OvercomingBias.com. I am your host, Catherine Gu, and this is Pandemic Pulse.